Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. We're just past the midpoint of the class. We're in the middle of this multi-week examination of human resources issues and while I'm away the topic here is looking at global organization uh, the podcast here coincides with the slides that are in the course platform so you'll need to look at both of these uh, this is designed to augment at the real depth of detail is in the PowerPoint presentation that's in the uh, course documents there for uh, human resources and organization uh, I'm going to begin kind of with an overview, and my uh, goal is to eventually work towards describing the handful of global organizational structures that I've uh, uh, asked you to learn, if you will, or, or have pointed to uh, being important for you to learn in an international context. Um, let's talk about some points that are important in terms of how management in a global setting is different than in a purely domestic one. Um, the first thing is that when you're managing across borders, you've got a lot more complexity. Uh, you're dealing with a diverse product line that has been adjusted for different culture, uh, countries, different languages, uh, different cultures, and so forth. So you're not, it's not like you have just one product line. The product line that you have varies from place to place. Uh, then the organizations that you're leading are comprised of members of various cultures. We see this even today. I mean, as the world shrinks, we've got uh, even domestic companies that are filled with people that are coming from all over the world. I've alluded to many times in, in the class uh, in my backyard the number of Indian and Japanese workers that I have right here in my neck of the woods. But and certainly when you are outside of the borders of your home country, you're dealing with, with people of different cultures. And, and those areas just as, as well uh, can have more than one culture present. I mean, if you go to Europe, Europe for example, uh, perhaps you're in Italy, it's not uncommon at all to have folks from Spain and Portugal and Greece, whatever, uh, working alongside of you. It's, it's much more common there than it is here. Um, and with those societal differences, we have to look at things like the legal complexity, the political differences, the social and economic differences. All of the things that we looked at during about the first third of the class um, that, you know, that we, we were studying one by one, they all become very, very important to the environment that you're working in and how you manage people. Um, the other thing is is that when we look at managers that we want to place in those foreign positions, you need something more than what is just obvious. You know, a lot of times managers will be sent over because they know a particular language. They're they're sent to Latin America, for example, because they know Spanish, which is a very weak decision for why you would hire somebody and put them in that kind of complexity. Uh, you're looking for people that have really good and sufficient skills, particularly with international expertise. And I'm going to exhume a couple of things here in just a moment that are, are an important part of that. But, you know, again, what I just alluded to, uh, you're dealing with uh, cultural differences, you're dealing with economic and political differences, and we are looking for the globe trotter kind of mentality, somebody that is very comfortable going from society to society, understanding the differences, and, uh, you know, one who is, who is not that bull in the china shop that I keep referring to. 
All right, now let's talk about organizational culture, not necessarily in a country setting, but in a company setting for a moment. Let's take it down to a little bit lower level. Uh, and then I want you to kind of layer on top of that, well, what happens after we talk about all of this when you start adding the complexities of culture and society, language differences, all of that to, uh, to, to the picture. Um, the first piece that I have here is that, that companies have unique cultures all their own. If you've had a job, uh, you've learned about the culture of your workplace. If you've had more than one job, you know exactly what I'm talking about because all you have to do is compare what the culture was in the first company that you work with with the culture in the second company that you work with and maybe even the third one. Um, if you've gone to different colleges, you know that on those campuses they have cultures as well and each one is different. Some are more formal, some are more lax. Um, some of them are very steeped in their own tradition. Some of them are very new. So you, you have to adjust the way that you function from workplace to workplace or, as I noted, even campus to campus if you've been on different college or in different college settings. Um, even various offices of a single firm can vary in their cultural aspects. Uh, you see this even in the United States. You might have a, a bank affiliate, let's say, in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is where you know fairly upwardly mobile, white collar professional, East Coast, uptight. The um, division, let's say, of that same company in in Texas or Arizona would be decidedly different. And obviously, if we talked about a, a company that was based, let's say, in New York City and then had affiliate offices in Tokyo and Paris and Pretoria, South Africa, those international offices are going to be very, very different in terms of their norms and their values. And a lot of that is influenced by the culture of the host country. So you think about the things that uh, you learned doing your cultural differences reports about gestures and etiquette and gift giving and sex roles and and power structures and, and whether a culture is uh, individualistic or whether they're group oriented or whether they're collective and whatnot. Um, all of those things affect how that office operates even though it's a, a member of a larger company. Um, so you, you really, you can't have in an international context kind of a one-size-fits-all mentality. You, you've got to be willing to adjust. You've got to be fluid. And your first course of action, if you will, is to try to understand what the landscape is. Understand, understand what the landscape is in the larger society and then also understand what is the landscape in the company or the division or office of the company where you will be working. Get that lay of the land first before you start imparting any kind of managerial efforts because you don't want to you don't want to end up with egg on your face trying to do something that's really inappropriate in that setting. All right. So got stuck here. Um, some proficiencies that international managers need as they go from one country to another or whether they actually go from place to place. It's, it's not uncommon, by the way, for somebody who's skilled internationally to go from international post to international post. Once they've proven themselves in one location, then they, they tend to keep globetrotting, if you will, if uh, the company is expanding globally. Um, in addition to your basic business skills, I mean, we presume that you're a good, solid business person. 
and that you're good in whatever your area of expertise is. There are other things that you need to be very good at if you're going to be successful in a non-domestic setting. The first one is you've got to have that geographic expertise. And, of course, the geographic ex expertise is what I'm just talking about, the ability to understand a society and the culture and the differences in gestures and etiquette and power differentials and, you know, the role of language and all of that. That's the stuff, again, that, you know, we've, we've spent a third of this class talking about getting you comfortable thinking about, uh, even with things like your international news reporting, you know, having that global mindset when it comes to news and that you know not everything originates out of the US not everything that goes on in the world uh, has anything to do with the, the, the domestic stuff uh, whether it's US or otherwise and that you know things are important to an individual country um, how the legal environment, the political situation, the economic environment all affect the larger society you've got to be comfortable and in being able to switch back between your own and the foreign offices and if you are one of the globe trotters where you go from place to place to be able to adjust relatively quickly from one to the next the second of these is product expertise you've got to know your product line not only do you have to know it from the obvious standpoint that you're just familiar with it but when we're overseas we typically are involved with a subset of the product line that was designed for the foreign office so you have to be familiar with the product line and how it applies to that location I've used in class I've talked about uh, Dell and the complications that a company like Dell has with the power systems on their laptops that they have you know about 200 different specifications across the world for uh, household or office electrical systems and then a multitude of different plugs so you have to be familiar and if I'm in if I'm in Italy what's their electrical system what kind of plug do they have and and right off the top of your head be able to chat about that and, and be cogent and fluent in what you're talking about. Uh, and that kind of goes into the third bullet, which is technical expertise. If you're an IT person, being comfortable with information technology, particularly in a worldwide setting. If you're an accounting person, uh, being very proficient in accounting, particularly when it applies to the differences in standards that go from one uh, region of the world or one country to the next. All right, so looking a little bit more deeply at each of these, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to talk about, again, geographic expertise. Um, when you're an international manager, you really have to be good with those international relations skills. Uh, this is not something that you can take for granted. You can't take it lightly. It's not a matter that, hey, uh, I know a little bit of high school Spanish or I took two years of college Spanish. I'll, I'll do fine in Mexico or I'll do fine in Honduras. You've got to be better than that and you've got to be very, very proficient working within the confines of the social uh, socio-cultural environment, the political environment, knowing your way around the geography, understanding you know the infrastructure, and you know where do I, how do I get around? Where can I get around? Uh, do I take public transportation? Can I rent a car? Uh, what's what are areas that are safe to travel in versus areas that are not? Uh, what's the economic climate of the of the host country? Is it growing or shrinking? How does the political climate play out, and so forth? So you have to be experts in in the country knowledge. Uh, and if you can't adapt to the host country environment, then you're probably going to be doomed to failure. Um, if you look at this, if you, if you look, for example, at the failure rate of international managers as compared to domestic managers, it's about three times higher. Uh, 
Uh, and that's because there are so many things that cause difficulty for the globetrotter. Uh, it, again, it's not just the language, it's getting used to the food, the money supply. Uh, a lot of times foreign uh, workers are not particularly respected or it takes a long time for them to be respected. Uh, being a, If you're on assignment, let's say, for six or eight months and you're away from your family, there's homesickness to contend with. Um, you know, understanding you know, I've got to drive on the left side of the road or uh, the climate is different than what you're used to. All of that stuff places a lot of stress on an international traveler because, you know, we're not talking about vacation anymore. We're talking about, you know, this is the life that you're living for months, if not years on end. And uh, uh, if, if you're good at that, if you're good at the adaptation, you're fine. If you're not good at it, then you're probably doomed to, to fail. The next piece is the or I'm sorry, the product expertise, and this is again, you know, really knowing your product line. It's not just enough to be culturally fluent, but you really have to have a knowledge of the products or services that are being offered and how those items have been adapted to the local environment that you happen to be working in. Again, go back and think about Dell. I'm I'm in Italy. It's uh, I don't know, 160 volt. Uh, 40 hertz system. You, you have to know what that means, how to interact with professionals about the power system, show them that the plug fits, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe it's a European-based international adapter. You have to show them how it works if they're going from country to country where the plug or the power system changes, you know, when they travel from Italy to France or Belgium or whatever. Um, but you have to be good at that. So you know we're now doing two balancing acts. One is being good within the culture. The other one is being you know essentially good within the culture of the company and its offerings. And not only do you have to be good, but you have to be able to impart it to the local workers as well. You've got to be able. You know you're managing these people. You've got to be able to bring them up to speed on what they need to know from a product standpoint, from a technological standpoint, from a customer service standpoint. It's not just what you know, but but it's how well you can convey it. And then the next piece is technical expertise. Um, you must be familiar with things like if there's any machinery to be operated, any kind of product support, repairs, warranty, uh, dealing with breakdowns of factory equipment. Let's say that you're getting something manufactured in China and it's going to be exported out of China into the United States and you're you're in an FDI situation where you've actually got this factory in China. Um, if the factory breaks down and the local people or you cannot repair the factory equipment, the retailers here in the United States are not going to want to wait for extended periods of time to get the item simply because you can't get... Um, get the machinery running and get the things built and sent off to the United States. Uh, this has come up as an issue. It was actually a historical problem with Hyundai and Kia, but it's actually a, a very important concern right now with Hyundai and Kia uh, today because if North Korea really creates some kind of hostility that disrupts the ability for South Korea to be able to produce what they make, including the cars, uh, we could see Kias and Hyundais have a part shortage here in the United States. Now, I know Kias and Hyundais are both made in the United States, but the parts come from South Korea. 
uh, or at least a lot of them do. So, you, you know, if you have a disruption in that supply line because of some kind of a military operation coming out of North Korea, that spells dire trouble for two of the world's largest auto retailers uh, and, and certainly would hurt, you know, the, the U.S. consumer because then they have cars that they can't drive because they can't get them fixed. So if you if you think about, you know, if you're a, a Hyundai dealer or a, or a Kia dealer or even the, the companies themselves here in the United States, how their reputation is on the line in those situations and how, you know, whether they can supply parts and fix cars and whatnot, you know, their, their um, reputation is going to be a reflection in how well they can do that. Um, the other thing with technical expertise that you have to be prepared for are the business disciplines like accounting and marketing and IT, information technology, uh, operations management and so forth. Um, you've got to be good at all of those kinds of things and again adjust them for the local market. I've, I've brought up in class that generally accepted accounting principles that we use in the West, particularly in North America and the U.S., uh, they are drastically different in other places around the world. Uh, many of you have noticed already that when you're looking at uh, European nomenclature on figures, that they tend to use a comma where we'll use a period, and they'll tend to use a period where we'll use a comma. So, you know, if you go to a store and what would be a dollar ninety nine here in the U in the U.S. Let's say you're looking at euros, and it's a, an equivalent figure one, you know, one point ninety nine decimal, but it would be represented in Europe as one comma ninety nine, and the inexperienced is left to go, you know, what am I looking at? Is that one thousand nine hundred and ninety something, and they dropped a digit? Is it a hundred ninety nine? I I don't know what I'm looking at. Well, it's it's you know it, in uh, base 10 numbers, it's 1.99, but they just use a different, uh, you know, different symbol to represent what we consider to be the decimal point. And then in Asia, it's com completely different because even the numbering system, the symbols are not the same, and you have to get, you know, familiar with how to convert out of uh, uh, what are known as ideograms, which is the Asian writing, and into a Western format. All right, now another thing that we want to take a look at in particular is the accounting and financial situation because we have this problem with not only the accounting methods, but we also have differential currencies. Your, you know, your host office, your, your parent company, if you will, is, in, is using American dollars, U.S. dollars. Uh, you may be operating an affiliate, affiliate that is using euros or rupees. Uh, not only do you have a currency conversion issue, but there's a differential in the value of those, and those values are subject to fluctuation. And so, you know, being good in international accounting is very, very important. Uh, also, local laws and the political situation really impact accounting and financial management. Uh, for example, in many countries in the Middle East, and, and I know Saudi Arabia, Arabia in particular is like this, uh, you can't get money, profits, out of that country, not through normal processes. Uh, you know, we, we would think, okay, we, we have a McDonald's there, and at the end of the quarter or the end of the year, we, we're sitting on $100,000 worth of profits. Uh, the parent company wants the $100,000, so we're just going to send that back. We're going to wire it back into the United States. Saudi Arabia won't allow you to do that. The, the money uh, has to be 
uh, essential, it can't be what we call repatriated is the word that I'm fishing for, but it, it can't be just sent out in the form of profits because they want to keep their their capital, their wealth within the within the country. And so in order to do it, there's a very complex series of things that they do in terms of buying equipment at an inflated price or buying supplies at an inflated inflated price maybe from a European subsidiary to get the money to flow out in kind of you know a legitimate transaction that actually gets the profits out of the country and you know maybe they're buying a drilling rig or something from Ireland and then the profits that were actually sent to buy the rig are carved off and they're sent back to the United States that kind of thing um, we'll talk about that more when we get into the class on on accounting and financial management but anyway where I'm going with all of this is that international managers really need to have good abilities in navigating the complexities of international finance and be comfortable with that you know uh, converting currencies looking at uh, fluctuations being able to trade and do spot rates and all of that um, and so degrees like international finance or international accounting really appeal to companies that are looking for workers who take on international posts because they're they are very comfortable with those kinds of assignments and that brings up the um, the idea of you know, what are recruiters looking for what what are companies looking for uh, when they have international operations, when they are they are trying to hire the people or promote the people that are going to be taking on these international posts, um, the first thing that I believe executives really look for is how well does the candidate really understand the host country? Um, have they lived there before? Have they traveled there before? Are they from there? Uh, if they're going to multiple countries, how comfortable are they? You know, if, if we look back, maybe they were a military family and they've lived in three continents in their lifetime. They're going to be a prized individual because the company, the HR department, will you know sort of have that predis predisposition that this person is going to be capable as a globetrotter. And so again, they're looking for uh, things like good geographic expertise, good social understanding, uh, in addition to good product knowledge, technical expertise, and so forth. And I mentioned this earlier uh, that companies that have these overseas operations oftentimes will move their most skilled executives around from one country to another, one location to another, uh, rather than have them just stay in one location and then come back home. And the reason why they do that is because these people are perceived at, at being successful as globetrotters, and so they, they can take these the skills, their cultural skills, their product knowledge, their technical expertise, into different markets and be successful. So you know, in one period of time, maybe they're working in the London office, and maybe they they have a problem there with customer service. So this ex, this this uh, executive who is maybe a customer service expert gets the London office in shape, and then the company is very confident that they can stand on their own and they say, okay, now we've got a similar problem in our Australian office and we want to have you spend uh, nine months down there getting those people up to speed and then maybe it's on into, uh, I don't know, Brazil or something like that and they're you know, basically doing the same thing but they're doing it in different regions. In some cases, a company might relocate an entire operation uh, for the same reason. For example, um, 
if they have a problem with the quality of production maybe coming out of Mexico. Uh, Ford has experienced this, for example. They, they sent um, they, they started out initially sending a lot of the technical stuff, uh, transmissions, engines, and whatnot, down into uh, Mexico because they saw it as a, as a place where it could be, these things could be put together very inexpensively. And they found out that there really was a lack of technical expertise in Mexico that you know, with things like seats and upholstery and carpet, that was one thing. But in building engines, they were having all kinds of quality controls. Things were having to be redone and whatnot. And so they relocated the entire operation for uh, the the drivetrains, the engines and the transmissions. Uh, one batch went to Japan. One bat batch went to Korea uh, because they felt like in terms of local labor, local management, that those countries were much more capable of doing the job than it was in um, in Mexico. Uh, another c uh, company that dealt with this was Nike, uh, and they did it mainly because of cost. They started out in places like Singapore and um, I'm trying to think where all it was, Taiwan I think it was, and then eventually they ended up moving to Indonesia and mainland China because A, the labor was just flat out cheaper, but also those were countries in which uh, labor unions were discouraged, and so they didn't have the problems of, of having a labor shop form around their, their operations. Another thing that's important to consider in relation to managers moving around from place to place is something that is called repatriation. Uh, that's spelled R-E-P-A-T-R-I-T-I-N-G. It's not a patriot like a you know, 1776, you know, fighter for the American colonies is patriate. Um, in fact, you'll hear the term expat, which means expatriate, uh, which is a, an expat is a person who moves overseas for an extended period of time, uh, maybe months, it may be years, or even indefinitely. Um, but these expats have challenges that they face that are different than anything that their domestic managers face, even when those domestic managers are moved around within the uh, country. Um, the, the first thing that you have to recognize is that the parent company has asked that staff member or the, the family with them, you know, maybe just the individual, maybe the family, to uproot themselves and move into a foreign country with a foreign culture for months or maybe years at a time. Uh, brought up, again, brought up in class uh, a couple of times. I talked about the Japanese families that work for Honda of America that live in my neighborhood, and these executives are coming from Tokyo. They live in the Columbus, Ohio area for about four years. Uh, typically, they're they're picked when they have young children that are like you know kindergarten, first grade, second grade, maybe something like that. Uh, they will be here just long enough, and and Honda's making this decision, but they stay here just long enough that if if they're sent somewhere else, sometimes back to Japan, sometimes to a completely different country, that the children are not uprooted like in their last year of high school or something like that. That you know they're they're being picked up in a fairly malleable time in their lives, maybe fifth grade, and then they're going back to Japan or what have you. But it's important to note that the uh, family, the, you know, the entire family has to embed themselves in that culture in order to be successful. I mean, they have to understand the food, the language written and spoken, um, 
work hours, the banking system, how the roadways work, you know, how, how do you drive on a road when you can't read the language and you're supposed to read the street signs? Even something as simple as taking public transportation can be difficult if the signage and the tickets and whatnot are, are not translated into a language that you can understand. Uh, how do you get your kids enro enrolled in school? You know, do we, do we put them in a, a foreign language school? Do we put them in an English language based school? Do we put them in a Catholic school? You know, all of these kinds of things are very difficult. Um, the, the worker, whoever the worker is that has the job, has the advantage of flying with the eagles. You know, they're out there working every day. The what we call the trailing spouse is oftentimes left at home, and they have an even harder time because they don't have the distraction of work. So they're, you know, they're the ones who are having to learn the grocery store and picking up kids from school and trying to interact with the, you know, the people around them, the the bank managers and the government officials and the teachers and things like that. It, it can be very, very stressful. Um, what's what's really interesting about expats is as difficult as it is to get adjusted to these new environments. When the assignment ends and the employee is expected to go back home and re-enter their old culture, they just as often don't want to. Um, they become accustomed to their new society. That becomes their home. They understand how that society works. They're used to it. Maybe they fall in love with a lot of things there and they don't want to go back. Uh, and in many cases, they will choose to stay in that location and make request of their employer to stay there. Or in a lot of cases, they'll say, you know, look, I don't want to go back to New Jersey. You can send me anywhere. You can send me to India. You can send me to Bangladesh. You can send me to Tokyo. I don't care. Just don't send me back to New Jersey. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but, but that happens. You know, they just decide that where they have been is, is more acceptable, more pleasant than where they came from. Um, this is all complicated by the fact that if you are a successful globetrotting executive, that your employer may regularly reassign you to different locations. So let's say you're out on assignment for four or five years like my Japanese friends here in, in my neighborhood, and just as we get used to them, just as they get used to living in the United States and, and their neighbors and friends and their kids are you know used to all the their schoolmates and whatnot, Tokyo calls and they've got to go back to Japan and it's it's very very difficult um, but it, it could be that they're not going back to Japan it could be they're, that they're being sent to India or that they're being sent to London wherever you know South Korea and and that in Excel itself is very difficult because not only are you trying to leave what has now become familiar to it, it's not a, a factor of going back to something that you are used to. Now you're going into a completely new situation and having to do it all over again. And you will find that companies that do this, uh, that regularly reassign employees, oftentimes will have connections to counseling services or even in-house counselors to help employees trying to adjust, trying to adjust to the new site that they go to, understanding the finances, understanding how they're supposed to function, dealing with the homesickness and the depression, and then the same things when they come back, you know, trying to readjust to American society and, um, you know, half half of the psyche thinks that they're home, the other half doesn't think that they're home, trying to get used to how America works again, or if they're sent off to Indonesia, how to uh, adjust from living in, let's say, I don't know, the UK and then and then the next place you are is in Indonesia
All right, switching gears. Let's talk about structures, managerial structures, organizational charts for international organizations. Organizational structures for international companies is obviously it's, it's conspicuously more complex than it is for purely domestic ones because we are crossing cultures. We are, you know, dealing with thousands of miles of distance and being disconnected with people. You know, we can't just walk down the hall and talk with somebody in a staff meeting. I mean, that, that same thing would happen if we had a New York office and an L.A. office, but at least if it's here domestically, you know, we're at the most we're talking about a three-hour time zone difference. We all speak English. We can use Skype, things like that. Um, when we're dealing across borders, we've got language differences. We've got time zone differences. We have work customs and etiquette differences and so forth that make all of that much more complicated. Alright, so the first thing that we're going to look at is managerial structures kind of on a whole. And you've probably dealt with this before at some point. And the, the next couple of things that I'm going to bring up is nothing really new if you've had a basic business class or a management or leadership type class. It's just talking about how organizational uh, structures have evolved over time. Originally, companies had very, very vertically oriented organizational charts. I can remember uh, dealing with Ford at one point. There was a, a Ford truck plant in Baltimore that I used to do some consulting work with. And I remember talking to a gentleman and said, yeah, they, at one time they had 42 layers of management. And there were literally guys that sat around all day at a desk with their feet up reading the newspaper because they didn't have anything to do. There was no real work for them to do and the company didn't even realize it um, simply because they were so bureaucratic. They were so vertical in their orientation with manager upon managers. You know, it would be like having a manager of rear bumpers or something like that. Today, and this has been going on for a good three, four decades, uh, companies are much flatter now. They have fewer layers of management, and the um, uh, business units within the organizational structure are much more autonomous, able to make their own decisions, and they are empowered to do so. Uh, these flat, self-sufficient organizational charts are really helpful when offices are dispersed over great distances and you need them to make their own decisions. I mean, you don't want to micromanage your Paris office if you're in Chicago. That's not going to work for them. It's certainly not going to work for you. You want them to be very, very comp competent, very confident in their ability to make decisions. In a similar discussion, let's look at organizations that are centralized versus decentralized. Um, multinational companies that are trying to integrate across geography, across a lot of divisions, will typically find that being more centralized is actually more useful than if their power is distributed. Uh, and so, despite what I just said, that you know it may be difficult to manage your Paris office from Chicago and you want the Paris office to have you know, the empowerment to be able to make their decisions and whatnot. When we look at the company as a whole, we want to have some fairly tight centralized authority 
because we need all of our offices and all of our operations thinking on the same page. We, while we want them to be able to make their own decisions, we don't want them to be sort of rabid and going off and doing their own thing. You know, we want them to buy into company culture. We want them to think in terms of the mission and the vision and what we want the company to accomplish. Um, make decisions, yes, but toe the party line for sure. And that requires some centralized control, which is different than we see in a lot of today's very decentralized organizations that don't have the kind of tight control over the enterprise and then we find you know a lot of entities are out there kind of doing their own thing um, and, and, and can sometimes cost the company dearly as a result of that. Alright so let's begin looking at one of the first ways that a company will go into uh, non-domestic situation. So you know, you're, let's say you you manufacture windows. You've been doing it domestically for a long period of time, and you, you're thinking, okay, I've sold windows successfully in North America for 25 years. I'm based out of New York State. Why can't I go into Canada? It's primarily English speaking. There's some French, and but you know, even the French. Uh, uh, provinces in Canada there are you know, still English speaking elements you know it's North America we have cultural bonds we think alike and you know kind of a common heritage and so forth I, I think you know it's geographically close I think I can sell my windows in Canada at least parts of it and so one of the first stages that we will find an organization go through is they will set up at what we call an international division an international division is a simply a section within the company that is concentrated on doing the international stuff. Uh, it's central control. You know, you, you've got central management overseeing it, but basically the international division does anything that is related to the non-domestic stuff. So they're going to be the ones that are dealing with uh, the export, the banking, the shipping, uh, international marketing meeting with suppliers, meeting with customers, whatever it happens to be. Um, it's, it's very similar to what we look at in this class when we do these import or export deals. And it, it basically evolves after kind of informal importing or exporting where, where those operations get large enough where the company says we need to have some formal oversight of the international affairs. Um, we may see this with international franchising. If you think back to the beginning of the class when we talked about things like licensing and joint ventures and franchising, uh, a lot of companies when they start franchising overseas will set up an international division. So you'll have you know, this company that's all about their domestic stuff in terms of setting up franchises and selling territories and managing those territories and whatnot. And then this little slice of the pie is their international division that handles the overseas. Uh, franchising. This particular kind of structure is relatively short-lived because it's not real complex and it's not real sophisticated. If, if you start getting into multiple countries, this tends not to work very well um, because the complexity of your overseas operation really trumps your ability to do anything with it with a single international division that probably evolved um, out of common sense more than anything. 
And so the next things that we're going to be looking at are much more deliberate, much more formal uh, formations of organizational structures for when your international dealings get big enough to warrant something that's, that's uh, very formal. The next three that we're going to look at, uh, it's one, the first one is called the geographic division, which is you know, kind of self-explanatory. It it's dealing with a particular geography, so you might have like a European division or an Asian division. Uh, then we have what's known as a product division, and in, in this structure, the offices or the operations are aligned around a particular product line, irregardless of the geography. So you might have, let's say, an auto manufacturer that has a, a light-duty truck division, and then there's another one that has car division and a hybrid vehicle division, and each unit would have its own management. So you have the truck division and its own management, the hybrid division and its own management, and so forth. And then finally, uh, you have a form called a functional division. With a functional division, the management is broken down by the business discipline. So you might have an accounting division, you have a marketing division, human resources and so forth. Um, and you know, if you think about human resources, for example, uh, the human resources, if, if you're dealing with a lot of different countries, really has to have broad geographic expertise. Uh, if you're doing marketing, the marketing has to have broad geographic expertise. And as I kind of wrap up the podcast, we're going to be talking about matrix and hybrid formations where they might be broken down. For example, you might have a functional division, and then the, uh, let's use human resources as an example, but you might have human resources for the domestic stuff. You have uh, European human resources and Asian human resources, all of that allowing for the very, very obvious differences in how human resources is run around the world. Now, when you look at the slides in the uh, course management system, I have organizational charts for each of these three. I have a geographic organizational chart for Ernst & Young and you see for example we've got operations for the Americas, we've got Far East, we've got um, European and so forth. So you, you very clearly see the uh, geographic breakdown below the chief operating officer and then even those for example we look at the Far East we've got uh, Japan and then we've got um, Indonesia and um, you know so it's it's not just uh, a continent but then it is further broken down by country. Uh, if you look at the Sony chart in the slides there are uh, there's a um, product organization. We have Sony Entertainment. We have so the Sony Game uh, line. The basic electronics which would be radios and phones and MP3 players and things like that. And then even Sony Financial Services. And then if you uh, continue looking through the slides you will see a functional organizational chart for a company uh, called APESA or PESA. And uh, the functions that you see there. For example, you've got general management, you've got promotion and develop, you've got logistics, which would be your shipping and so forth, uh, financial and cost control, you've got project management. Um, very clearly broken down by, by business function. And as I said, there are 
combinations of these are what we would refer to as kind of special cases. For example, there's one variation, and your book does a good job of describing it, which is the hybrid or the matrix structure. Uh, in a hybrid structure, there are two or more lines of intersecting control. So, for example, you have uh, you may have product responsibility and regional. Uh, responsibility intersecting. That's you know, it's the Human Resources Office for Asia, the Human Resources Office for Europe, and so forth. Uh, and the idea behind this is that you know, when you have kind of two heads are better than one, or you have multiple lines of thinking, that it leads to more effective decision making. The second special case is the strategic business unit. And the strategic business unit is uh, basically a completely autonomous entity, and it, and it runs itself, not necessarily always checking in with the corporate office. It's run as if it was its own independent company, but still under the corporate veil. Uh, the, the best case that I can think of related to this is the Disney Store system. That's part of the uh, you know the overall Disney enterprise. You know Disney Disney has a lot of strategic business units. They have their entertainment division. They have their theme parks. Uh, they have the Disney stores. All of them basically are strategic business units. What goes on at uh, let's say the Disney theme parks really has nothing to do with what's going on in the Disney store system and none of that really has anything to do with what's going on with Disney Entertainment. Now they do they do have intersecting touch points of course because the store has to end up with the merchandise that comes out of the, the movies and the TV shows and whatnot but the store system is run as an, auto an autonomous unit. And then lastly is what we call the virtual organization, and we see this becoming more and more uh, a part of everyday business life as we see companies that are created purely as e-commerce entities. They're not bricks and mortar at all. Uh, they are doing everything online, and even their staff are essentially assemblies of offices that are being run in various areas around the country, around the world, and quite frankly, a lot of them being operated out of their homes, you know, where, wherever they happen to, to reside. I, I even like to refer to kind of the Starbucks-based operation, because how many people do we know today that really they work wherever they can open their laptop and get, get a Wi-Fi connection? Um, I know that's the case with me. I know several people that are my peers that do the same thing. And so, you know, while they might have a home office somewhere, the reality is they use Skype, they use email, they use discussion boards, FaceTime, whatever it happens to be, they use their cell phones. All of that to mediate the communication and interaction that they need to have, need to, need to take care of. And, you know, since communication technology is so easy to come by today since office equipment you know, particularly IT equipment like laptops and tablets the price has dropped so dramatically um, it eliminates the costly uh, office space that might have otherwise been needed you know you don't you don't have to pay rent you don't have to pay for utilities you don't have to furnish anything uh, and for the employees it provides them with a high degree of flexibility because they can work from home. They don't have big commutes. Maybe they can solve some child care problems. It's a, it's a nice work life. Uh, plus, it provides a very clear degree of autonomy that a lot of workers really appreciate. You know, even though we live in this team-based, group-based world where everybody's expected to work in teams, there's an awful lot of people out there that really are very autonomous folks. 
um, and and they like to you know essentially work on their own. So um, you, you'll notice you know as as we do online elements of our class here, discussion boards and you know communicating via email and whatnot, we're seeing symptoms of that as it's not just communication. I mean we are we are um, accomplishing things. You know we're we are doing projects, we're getting work done. Uh, those of you that are listening to this that are working in teams, your teams are coming together and learning about shipping or banking or whatever and doing that in, in a team-oriented way. All right, so that wraps up uh, what I what I wanted to get through on the podcast. Uh, it, it parallels, it's not completely identical to the slides, but it parallels the high points of the slides. And so I want you guys to go out and uh, look at the PowerPoint presentation that is in your course platform. That will be part of what I want you to go through while I'm gone. Um, you've got an extra credit project to work on, but if you have any questions about what to do during this week, get in touch with me by email. Uh, I'll be one of those virtual workers while I'm gone. I'm, I'm on vacation, but I've got my laptop with me. I'll be checking messages every Every day working in the discussion boards with you across the week so nothing really changes other than we're not going to have that live session while I'm gone so uh, anyway enjoy the week make very productive use of your time while I'm gone uh, those of you that are uh, you know your, your team based and listening to this make sure that your team gets together this week and uh, otherwise I will see you uh, back again when we get together in the week of the 28th Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.